Many physicians have the misconception that if they're a good physician, practicing good medicine, high quality medicine, that they're protected from sham peer review. And that is simply not the case. If a hospital decides to get rid of you for some reason, they will find some way to do that. And they will sometimes uh, look uh, for a clinical reason. And if the clinical reason does not pan out, then they will often shift to a more subjective charge like a disruptive position. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, You know, first of all, thank you for listening um, to our episodes. um, Feedspot.com in their rankings um, of 15 best cardiology podcasts in the world ranked Parallax at two. So that means a lot to the team uh, at Parallax um, and Ratcliffe and Make a Dent. And we thank you, the listeners, but we also thank our guests. You know, it's it can't be without either the guests or the listeners that we're, we are where we are. Um, and with that sort of, you know, prelude, uh, the episode, this episode today is an extremely, extremely important episode is a crucial one, not only for, um, uh, you know, the cardiology community at large, but for colleagues and for cardiologists and interventionalists and general cardiologists and everyone, or for physicians, I should say, not only cardiologists, but for physicians at large. And, uh, you know, is is extremely relevant in 2022 and, um, and you'll find out why. So um, my guests on the show... Um, Today, our Dr. Amir Kaki um, is uh, the director of the complex PCI program at St. John's Hospital in Detroit, um, also mechanical circulatory support. Um, and he's an interventional cardiologist par excellence and is associate professor of medicine at Wayne State University. And with him is Dr. Larry Huntoon. Uh, now, Dr. Huntoon is a neurologist, but more importantly, uh, serves actually as the editor in chief of the Journal of the American um, Physicians and, and Surgeons since 2003. And he's the past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Um, he's the current president of the American Health Legal Foundation and has served as uh, an, an, an expert, a court qualified expert in, in Shampier reviews and has testified in state and federal cases throughout the nation. Um, so, Dr. Huntoon, thank you so much um, for being with us on the show. And then my final guest is uh, Deborah Gordon, uh, and she is uh, an employment attorney. Uh, so we've got an expert panel here for you. And the issue that we're tackling on this podcast is an extremely relevant and an extremely crucial one because I think it's tied to physician burnout. It's tied to physician suicide. Um, and it's tied to overall physician well-being. And uh, I think it's something which we need to bring to the fore and be aware and be aware of the legalities and the and our rights as physicians and cardiologists. Um, so with that introduction, welcome everyone on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Thank you, Ankur, for having me. My pleasure. Um, so I'm going to start um, by asking you, Dr. Kaki, and, um, you know, Tell 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 the audience about um, 
about, you know, a peer review process from the perspective of an interventional cardiologist. Um, you know, for someone who is listening, who knows nothing about the peer review process and about the rights of, of a physician or an interventionalist, uh, please educate us about, about this process. Yeah, so um, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm an interventional cardiologist and uh, been very fortunate to, uh, to have been very successful and uh, see a lot of patients and very clinically busy. I also uh, do research and, um, you know, engage in the uh, academic scholarly activity that uh, many of us do. And what I did not do uh, during all this process was really understand hospital bylaws. I didn't understand the peer review process until, um, unfortunately, I was um, forced to uh, just a little bit background, Unker, is I did um, lose my privileges, and uh, in that process, um, I went through uh, the due process, which uh, included a fair hearing. And um, the way I thought of it is I would go to the fair hearing, and I would present my case to my peers, and they would pass judgment based on the facts and the evidence. And um, if they ruled in my favor, the... It, my colleagues at the level of the medical executive committee would reinstate my privileges. But what I found out, unfortunately, much to my surprise, and I, I would I would venture to say that most physicians listening uh, would, would have felt the same way because we don't understand this. No one has trained us or taught us this process, yet it's critically important. So I did go through the uh, fair hearing, and uh, in the fair hearing, you are judged by a jury of your peers, and when we think jury of our peers, we would think colleagues within the same specialty. And you would think there would be some type of unbiased way to identify these folks. But it turns out the jury of your peers are physicians that are appointed by the hospital, oftentimes employed by the hospital, and potentially conflicted. Um, I was fortunate that the jury of my peers, none of them who, I, none of them who did I know, and none of them were uh, cardiologists, ruled in my favor unanimously and uh, asked uh, and made a very strong recommendation to reinstate me. Uh, this recommendation went to the Medical Executive Committee and the Medical Executive Committee took this recommendation and voted also unanimously to reinstate my privileges without conditions. Uh, unfortunately, that's not where it ends. The Medical Executive Committee makes this, makes this recommendation to another committee called the JCC, which is not made up of physicians oftentimes, but people in the community who have a relationship with the hospital, with hospital administrators who administer in your hospital. And in my particular case, uh, the JCC in unprecedented fashion rejected the recommendation of not only the, uh, my peers at the level of the peer review process, but also the recommendation of the medical executive committee. And uh, I found this, you know, very disheartening because clearly you could uh, see the biases, uh, the vulnerability that we have as physicians when non-physicians, non-peers are involved in this process. And this process is subject, at least in my case, easily to be abused uh, for hospital politics and other reasons. So uh, I was not aware of that, Unker, and I would uh, venture to say that most doctors do not understand that ultimately your privileges are not dictated uh, by your colleagues through a very transparent, fair process, but ultimately hospital administration uh, controls our destiny.
Yes, and you know that is. A, I mean, it could be a revelation to so many physicians. Um, you know, you know, go, going through the process of of training and and acquiring skills. I mean, you're you're focused. You know how to write an application. You know how to write a personal statement. Um, you know how to explain yourself, and you know the the scientific basis of clinical decision making, um, and you know how to take care of patients. Um, and you're just focused on the science and and the practice of medicine that you um i mean I, i'm i'm you know listening to you i'm i'm talking you know uh based on what what i've what i've learned and uh, i'm also talking based on you know personal experiences that the the hospital administration is such a blind spot for physicians and you know like you said you know hospital administration can um can can control of a physician's destiny and physicians are not even aware um of their rights and of the of the technical terms and and terminology that is that is used and uh, you know i think is is a great um uh, is a great segue for me to to bring in dr hantoon and sort of ask him in in his phenomenal experience of years and he's uh, he's a he's a he's an expert in in the peer review process dr hantoon in in your experience what has been what is your insight on you know the the knowledge or 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 lack thereof amongst physicians on 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 this particular topic uh, around peer review process and hospital privileges and and credentialing well i think uh most physicians are not aware of the peer review process in hospitals and i think uh, even fewer are aware of uh, the thing that we call sham peer review until it happens to them and uh, one of the things i always recommend uh, for all physicians is to look at your medical staff bylaws review them particularly the corrective action section of the bylaws which sets forth your supposed rights under the bylaws if you've been accused of uh, of wrongdoing poor care or improper conduct and and i i will comment just on something you you said that uh the board of the hospital sometimes called the board of trustees is the ultimate authority in the hospital they're the ones who make the ultimate decision uh, you know about privileges and uh from the case law i've read and i should say i'm not an attorney i don't give legal opinions or legal advice but i can read and the case law i've read there has to be some compelling reason for a for the board of directors to reject the recommendations of physicians who are primarily responsible for quality care in the hospital so the here the peer review hearing panel consisting of physicians those are the ones who actually went through the whole process and looked at the actual evidence in the case and that goes to the MEC and the MEC then makes a recommendation to the board of directors and there should be some compelling reason for the board of directors to reject the recommendation of the MEC the other thing you you referenced briefly is that the board of directors although there may be one or two physicians on the board of directors for the most part they are lay persons and their knowledge of, of 
various things in medicine, and certainly I think most have no knowledge of what the peer review process is, it's very limited. I can remember one case where the one of the board members was deposed, and it was his opinion that if a doctor was sued for malpractice, the doctor must have done something wrong. It doesn't matter if he was found liable or not. The mere fact that the doctor was sued for malpractice means that the doctor was providing poor quality care. And, you know, for uh, the listenership who may not be aware of the terminology, the, the you mentioned MEC, that's the Medical Executive Committee, right? Yes. And the Medical Executive Committee, unfortunately, in most hospitals is made up uh, mainly by physicians who are financially tied to the hospital. Usually the Medical Executive Committee consists of the heads of the various departments and oftentimes one or two at-large members who are voted by the medical staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, let me, I'm just going to ask you this question, Dr. Huntoon. If, if someone who's, um, I, 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 I hate to use the word victim, but, you know, if, 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 someone who's had an adversarial experience with with the peer review process or um you know and and then has had to present himself or herself you know in front of the peer review committee and then the medical staff executive committee um and then is sort of determined to um you know to to do right by his or her colleagues and wants to then pursue uh, a path um in hospital leadership or hospital administration, is there um, is there a formal program or a process or or some sort of training mechanism where physicians can actually get trained in all these processes, or is it just by trial and error and you get exposed to these processes and then one fine day someone anoints you to be a member of the medical staff executive committee? How does the process work? Well, I don't think there is any specific training for being a member of the Medical Executive Committee. However, there is specific training regarding peer review and peer review procedures for so-called hospital leadership. And that might include, you know, the chief of staff, maybe the chief of some of the departments and that sort of thing. But unfortunately, the formal or formal training is offered by a law firm in Pittsburgh whose name I won't mention, but they provide uh, they provide courses uh, two or three times a year throughout the nation, teaching physician administration, hospital administration, and physician leadership about peer review. And you know, it's my opinion that they basically try and teach how to make a paper trail that makes it look like they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and provided uh, due process when that may not actually be the case. Um, uh, Deb um, is, is a good, good, um, you know, juncture for, for me to ask you this question and, and, you know, interject. If someone approaches you with, uh, you know, wrongful termination, um, you know, first of all, in your experience as a physician uh, or, you know, someone else within the within the healthcare space, um, what are some of the initial sort of questions that you ask that person and how do you go about determining if this was wrongful termination, um, which was, um, which occurred, uh, you know, due to uh, a sham peer review process? Because, you know, it is my understanding that it is extremely hard uh, 
to to prove innocence, uh, you know, in sham peer review because it's under the veil of patient safety. Absolutely, anchor. Um, the fact of the matter is that sham peer review, um, I think, does occur often for political reasons or as in Amir Khaki's case, for illegal reasons. Um, And what I look for are a couple of things. First, uh, get your bylaws. Look at the bylaws. Were the bylaws followed? In some states, the bylaws are considered to be a contract, which is enforceable as any other contract would be. In other cases, states, uh, bylaws are not considered to be a contract. So there goes one option, because if if the bylaws are a contract, then I've automatically got an angle if they were not properly enforced. Next, as Dr. Kaki said, we have to look at the due process element because virtually all the bylaws do require a, a due process hearing. Now, Dr. Kaki had a due process hearing and he prevailed in the due process hearing. And there were multiple days of hearing and there were multiple witnesses and experts were brought in. And after all of this, uh, four doctors decided he had done absolutely nothing wrong. And actually, they issued a, a very, I think, um, an opinion where they expressed their outrage as to what had occurred and why he was even at the hearing. Nonetheless, as he's already explained, um, he was ousted. In our case, there was a large corporate entity that was controlling the hospital he was in. Um, and what we looked at and what the information was that he provided me with was that there was a long history with Dr. Kaki and one of his partners on complaining about patient safety, complaining about fraud in billing. And the powers that be were well aware of that and testified in our case that they were aware of it and they didn't like it. Hence, it didn't matter what happened at the due process level. It didn't matter what the hearing officials found they were going to create a workaround. And that gets to Dr. Huntoon's point about the makeup of the MEC, who is there, and Dr. Kaki's point about the JCC, which could just be community people, and then ultimately the board of directors, um, which is, you know, handpicked. They're, they feel a little bit, you know, like, you know, they're important people. They're there and they, they have other day jobs and they take the lead of the president of the board and others you know, similarly situated. In our case, we brought what's called a False Claims Act claim, um, which is a federal statute. There's also one in our state of Michigan. And we were able to prove as a matter of law that Dr. Kaki was retaliated against. And that's why uh, his hearing was a sham, uh, that he had to be silenced for um, refusing to acquiesce in uh, potentially fraudulent billings and patient safety matters. Those are all important things to look for and it's a very complicated uh, process. Yes, and, and you know, just for the audience again, for the listenership, JCC stands for what? What does it stand for? That's the Joint Committee Council. And I think uh, it's very important for everybody to understand that's who controls the fate of the physicians. It's not your colleagues. It's not your chairman. It's not a group of physicians who know you and respect you, will evaluate, evaluate your work objectively without bias and understand what a physician is, understand our ethical standards and the standards and the oaths that we take. It is people who are non-physicians for the most part, who have a relationship with the hospital, 
who are potentially in conflict with the physician's interests, with patient care interests. And these are the people that, at least in my experience, and I hope um, you know Dr. Huntoon could shed some light on the rest of the country because he's probably the authority in the United States on this, but it seems to be the case everywhere. And the reason I'm on this podcast is really to uh, really affect my colleagues throughout the country and increase awareness because I've, since this has happened to me, I get frequent calls, you know, on a weekly basis. Oftentimes, I refer them to Dr. Huntoon and to Deb on physicians who have been targeted for various reasons, and they have no clue how to defend themselves. They don't understand the process. They're very vulnerable, and oftentimes, because of their ignorance, are taken advantage of. And it's oftentimes to the detriment of their livelihood, their families, their careers, uh, irre irreparable damage to their reputations. And unfortunately, sadly enough, you mentioned this in the beginning, Unker, some people have not been able to uh, survive this and has led to suicide, premature retirement. People who are very good physicians who are dedicated to our patients have left the field. This is a very, very serious issue. We as physicians need to increase awareness. There has to be grassroots. We need more people like Huntoon, Dr. Huntoon leading us, teaching us, and uh, and hopefully mitigating this because this is a very, very challenging experience for any physician to go to. Uh, or may, may I just add something to that? Um, a, a practice pointer for physicians. Your bylaws undoubtedly have provisions um, to alert you if you are having problems with regard to your performance. Um, there's disruptive provider provisions in, in most bylaws. There are performance improvement plans. There are systems where you are placed on a review or a probationary status. Um, make sure that you look in your bylaws to see what is available if, in fact, there truly are problems with your performance. And uh, in Dr. Kaki's case, he had an utterly clean record, an excellent record. None of that had been done, and that was pivotal to our winning our case that they came after his privileges without ever having engaged in the corrective measures that are provided for in the bylaws. And I will just make one other comment to the physicians listening. Uh, most of us are very good physicians dedicated to our craft uh, as evidenced by uh, the work we do every day and our commitment to our patients. And if you're a very good physician and they wanna get rid of you they, uh, and you're a good doc, it's unlikely they're gonna use clinical uh, reasons to do that, although Dr. Huntoon will share with us how they can do that. A very vulnerable spot that's very objective, uh, excuse me, a very subjective that you could be, that could be used against physicians is something called disruptive physician policy. And that actually is, is a very gray area and subject to a lot of discretion. So I would encourage all the physicians uh, to read your bylaws, read uh, these policies that have been implemented, oftentimes by attorneys that work for the hospital, oftentimes without a physician being included in this. This is really important. And uh, had I known this, uh, potentially uh, could have been more prepared. I'm very, very happy and grateful uh, to my legal team uh, that was led by Deb and to people like Dr. Huntoon, who uh, helped me understand this and helped me uh, not only uh, win my case, but to be vindicated in the eyes of my colleagues and uh, more importantly, in the eyes of my patients and my family. So uh, to all the physicians listening, 
this is really important, much more important than the latest article that you read in your specialty. Understand your bylaws, understand your rights, and understand what's going on uh, so this can never uh, impact you like it did me. So, you know, I've tried to read the bylaws document myself and, you know, it. I think after about a couple pages, it becomes cumbersome and laborious. You know, this is from a physician who, you know, is, is a physician scientist and a researcher and can understand statistics and, and read and write articles. But when it comes to reading a document, you know, even a contract or a bylaw, it, it is it is cumbersome. It's, you know, the some of the terms that are used are, are legal terms and the way it's written is legal language. Um, Dr. Kaki, do you have any recommendation on how to uh, demystify a bylaws document for physicians so that, you know, just like we can understand news and articles, we can understand what's written there? Uh, basically, yeah, basically, you know, if you've got questions about the bylaws, you, you should consult with an attorney. They can read it. They'll give you their opinion about uh, the procedure, what to expect, uh, what your rights are. So if you've got any questions about that, definitely consult with uh, an attorney. I also wanted to make the point that I think many physicians have the misconception that if they're a good physician, practicing good medicine, high quality medicine, that they're protected from sham peer review. And that is simply not the case. If a hospital decides to get rid of you for some reason, they will find some way to do that. And they will sometimes uh, look uh, for a clinical reason. And if the clinical reason does not pan out, then they will often shift to a more subjective charge like a disruptive physician. And the charge of disruptive physician is very vague and subjective. And, and the evidence is the accusation. There is no more other evidence really than simply the accusation. And uh, so that's a very uh, difficult thing. And as far as clinical ch charges, in some cases where they can't find that the doctor did anything wrong, in some cases the hospital will act to fabricate uh, something wrong. And I've published one of these cases in our journal and it was a, a well-known orthopedic surgeon who mainly did uh, endoscopic shoulder surgeries. And the, they, the hospital wanted to get rid of him because they looked at him as a competitor and he was going to set up an MRI in his own office and compete with the hospital. And they didn't like that. And, and so they were looking for some way to get rid of him. And uh, post-op infection rate is a good charge to make against surgeons. Well, he didn't have really any post-op infections. So what was done in that case is someone at the hospital inserted three different bacteria into the surgical irrigation fluids and infected four of his patients uh, who were elderly, uh, could have become very sick and died. They traced these bacteria to the hospital, they were a specific type of bacteria. They were pan-sensitive. And as physicians, we know you don't find pan-sensitive bacteria in the environment. They are purchased from various supply houses by hospitals so they can test their procedures. And that was the organisms, those were the organisms that were traced back to the hospital. They showed the hospital purchased these organisms within a few weeks of uh, someone inserting it. Uh, into these surgical irrigation fluids. So they created 
a post-op infection rate in his case and went after him for that. Um, I, I, I just, I, I don't even know what to say here. I mean, so they, so they are harming patients to get rid of a physician. That's what they did. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, some hospital administrators, not all, have no problem with using patients as pawns to, quote, get the doctor. Um, Deb, do you, what do you have to say to this? And, you know, Dr. Kaki, I mean, just, uh, I, it, well, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, yes. Uh, Dr. Huntoon, unfortunately, you know, our experience was the same. Um, there, there were no patients harmed that I know of. Perhaps Amir can, can speak to that, but nothing that, that I can think of right now. But what they did do is they brought in an outside law firm and I had testimony at the time of our, our trial that the um, the heads of the hospital and of the corporate entity had already made the decision to terminate Dr. Kaki. After the decision was made, they brought in outside counsel and they asked outside counsel to create a report. Uh, the report was a sham. There was no real report. It was simply a compilation of alleged complaints that had never been substantiated. Um, I spent two years trying to get that report um, under Michigan law, you are entitled to get all uh, materials in your file, which have, you know, affected your employment relationship. And uh, we, we fought for several years to even get the report. Then this hospital entity said there was no report. I won't bore you with all the details. But when we got the report, it was clearly a sham. And this law firm had been hired to come up with this. And this is what they hung their hat on all through the entire process that we went through. It, it was an outside report. Hundreds of people were interviewed, which, of course, was not true. Um, this is what we're relying on. And then we got the report and there, it was a sham. And, of course, our, you know, our judge uh, did see that very clearly. It was obvious. And we prevailed and the privileges were restored. I, I will say this, that I've been doing uh, I've been serving as an expert in sham peer review for going on 20 years. And one thing I've noticed is an increasing uh, frequency of totally false charges or fabrications. And again, in another case I participated in, the hospital accused the doctor of giving a medication which killed the patient. And they were riding that horse all the way to the peer review hearing. At the peer review hearing, however, the nurse taking care of the patient testified that the patient, she never gave the patient that medication. But they persisted. You know, they were they had to switch to something else, but they had months between the time that they took an action against the doctor to look into this. It was their own records uh, to see clearly that that medication was never get, given. In, a, in another recent case I had, uh, and these often involved tabloid-style accusations against the doctor. The doctor was accused of abusing the patient by failing to stop when the patient yelled stop during a lumbar puncture procedure. And two other nurses that were in the room at the time, in addition to the nurse that filed the complaint against him, testified under oath at the peer review hearing that he failed to stop when the patient said stop. Now, the patient was brought into the peer review hearing and testified under oath that the doctor did stop 
and asked him where the pain was. It turned out to be a Charlie horse, which had nothing to do with the lumbar puncture procedure. The patient was repositioned and the Charlie horse and the pain went away. But there's another tabloid accusation. He was accused of abusing that patient. I mean, you, you hear those charges and, and people think, wow, that's, that's a bad doctor abusing the patient or giving the patient a medication that killed them. That's, that's very bad. So those are the types of uh, charges and fabrications that I'm increasingly seeing. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, you know, it's extremely sad to hear. Uh, it's also very disturbing. You know, no wonder burnout rates are through the roof and, you know, there is uh, the the exodus of physicians from medicine, which is very, very sad because it takes so long to, you know, get to become get to become a physician and practice your craft. And there is just um, so much drive and passion that goes into it and, and so much toil and hard work and it's on a daily basis. Dr. Kaki, you know, for someone who has, has, is realizing or has realized that he or she has gone through a sham peer review process, what are the first steps that they should take, uh, you know, according to you? And then I'll have Dr. Antun, uh, you know, supplement your answer as well. Yeah, what I would encourage um, my colleagues is uh, have a healthy paranoia about the hospital administration. And when I say healthy paranoia, very simple things that I learned in my process. Uh, most people use hospital email. And I found out in my particular case, as I was trying to make my case when they would make allegations against me that were simply false, I could say, you know, I sent you an email and you could look at it. It turns out that uh, if you use the hospital email, they own that email. They have access to that email. When they take your privileges or whenever they want, they could deny you access to your own email. So if you have email saved or that was written, um, that's something that I learned is not yours. As a result, I've changed my practice. I refuse to use hospital emails. Uh, there's HIPAA compliant private emails that you can use. That's an example. Another example, uh, you should attend a peer review if your case is being discussed. You should be a part of the QA process within your department. These are areas uh, that uh, can be easily abused if you are being targeted by the hospital. A lot of us are oftentimes very busy or too busy because of our clinical obligations and duties and sometimes may not attend. But I would encourage you to attend any peer review meeting, any quality assessment meeting, be a part of the process. I'm very fortunate right now that I work in a very healthy environment where the culture is really about the p the, the culture and the peer review process is really about learning and improving uh it's not used uh it's not weaponized it's used against physicians so i've been in environments where it's been very hostile and tried to attempt it to be used against me and i'm currently very fortunately in an environment where we have a genuine authentic peer review for the intended use of peer review which is to improve so we could help patients in the future and so Depending on the environment and the culture and the toxicity of where you practice, uh, those are things that I would tell you you should do immediately. Be very, uh, have a healthy paranoia would be the best description when you're dealing, particularly with hospital administrators, less so with our colleagues who seem to have higher ethical standards. Yeah, Dr. Huntun, would you like to supplement that answer? Yes, well, I wrote an article uh, a few years ago called Sham Peer Review Disaster Preparedness and Defense. It, 
tells physicians what to do and what not to do once you've been attacked. It also tells physicians what you can do to maybe help protect yourself from attack. So that might be a good article to look at for anyone that's interested. It was published in our journal, the Journal of American Physicians and Surgeons. And that website is jpands.org. There's a cumulative index. You can search under sham peer review and probably find the article. The other thing is uh, early on, you need to look at those medical staff bylaws, the corrective action section and the summary suspension uh, section to see what the process is and what you're entitled to in terms of so-called due process under the medical staff bylaws. The other thing which is critical is that you get an attorney, a knowledgeable attorney on board early. Don't wait until this thing's been going for a number of weeks or a month or two and you're counting on your your uh, colleagues doing the right thing. You know, uh, don't count on that. You, you need a knowledgeable attorney to help you through the process, mainly to make sure that your due process rights are not trampled upon by the hospital. And to that point, uh, I I remember something very vividly, a conversation I had early on with Dr. Huntoon. And he he taught me something that's really important that I passed on to a lot of physicians. I never realized the hospital will come to you if they're targeting you. It's easy for easier for them to bully you into resigning. But understand one thing, if you resign your privileges, even if you do so under duress, you surrender your due process. And that's something a lot of physicians do not know. And actually happened to one of my colleagues who was in a situation with mine. He was bullied under duress to sign off uh, voluntarily his privileges, and he did not get due process. So Dr. Huntoon, do you want to uh, share with everyone uh, what you taught me if when approached by the hospital, particularly in a hostile, toxic situation, to voluntarily resign your privileges uh, when they offer you that, what is the implication for our colleagues once they do that? Yes, and I have handled many calls on the AAPS Sham Peer Review Hotline, which I run on a pro bono basis and have saved many careers just by providing the physician with the information not to resign if the hospital approaches you Uh, Because here's what happens. If you resign while there is an ongoing investigation or ongoing uh, formal peer review, that hospital is going to report you immediately to the National Practitioner Data Bank. Once you're reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank, your career is either totally ruined or ended. And the other thing that happens is because you've resigned from the medical staff, you no longer have any rights under the medical staff bylaws because you're not a member of the medical staff. So it's a it's a win win for the hospital. And I will tell you that the hospital administration, usually the CMO or vice president of medical affairs may approach the physician and say, look, look, doctor, this will go a lot easier and better for you if you just just resign your privileges and you won't have to go through this uncomfortable peer review process and and if you just do that things will be okay i've even seen some actually lie to the physician and say it won't be reported to the data bank and then the very next day after the physician resigns they report to the data bank and that's all based on you know sworn testimony that they've told the physician that and and so so that's the implication. And when I say National Practitioner Data Bank, there are different kinds of reports. 
the reports that you see with malpractice uh, cases or malpractice settlements are different in implication than the reports uh, of a hospital uh, revoking or suspending your privileges. That latter type is called an adverse action report. And it's very serious. And again, the implication is that your career will either be totally ruined or ended. Yeah. And I, I just want to editorialize that. Uh, Anker, the doctors need to understand who are listening. Being reported to the National Practitioner Database is uh, not up to us. The hospital could do it without your consent, without your knowledge. And the problem with the database and the process is that the physician's rights are compromised. If they report you for something that is not true or not substantiated, it's not like you could go hire Deb and tell her to get this off of my record. It doesn't work that way. It's not like you could get expunged. And I learned that if they make that report to the database, it's very hard, if not impossible, to have that removed. And as Dr. Huntoon alluded to, the implications for your career is very detrimental and potentially career ending. So you could imagine someone like me who's in my mid 40s, who has three young children, what that would have meant for, for, for the rest of my life. Not to mention all my patients who I care about and, uh, and love deeply. But on a personal level, it could have potentially destroyed my life. And they had no qualms about doing that. So uh, keep that in mind, that's very, very important. Actually, we had to go to um, our arbitrator at one point to get an injunction to stop uh, the hospital from reporting um, what had occurred with regard to Dr. Khaki's privileges that they'd been not renewed. And there are laws that do require hospitals to report or associational rules. And without the court ruling, um, it's just as Dr. Khaki said. So um, it's extraordinarily important, as Dr. Hantun said, to get on this very early and to uh, do whatever you can to ensure it doesn't get that far, because at that point, uh, you're in dire, dire trouble. And that's, abso that's absolutely important. The preliminary injunction, a temporary restraining order, absolutely important because there are time frames on this thing. And you need to prevent the hospital from reporting to the National Practitioner data bank, if possible, by getting the preliminary injunction. That gives you more time, you know, to uh, fight the case in, in litigation. And uh, so that's absolutely uh, essential early on to, uh, to do that if it's, uh, if it's possible. Yeah. Could you explain to us what preliminary injunction means? Um, you know, well, there are different kinds of preliminary injunctions. There's what's called a prohibitive uh, uh, preliminary injunction, which prohibits the party from doing something. And then there's something called a mandatory preliminary injunction, which says you must do something. So the type of preliminary injunction we're talking about here is a prohibitive one. And it requires that the doctor be able to show that if the court does not grant the preliminary injunction, the doctor will suffer irreparable harm the doctor has to show that he's likely to prevail on the merits of the case. The doctor has to show that the harms uh, done to, it, it's called balance of harms, that the harm done to the physician, if it's not granted, is uh, balanced against potential harm to the hospital if it is granted. And the last thing usually is uh, it must not disserve the public uh, interest. Now, in a recent case, I mean, just two weeks ago, 
a judge ruled uh, that the doctor did not show irreparable harm. It was the judge's opinion that a report to the National Practitioner Data Bank, which ruins the doctor's reputation, could be remedied and the patient and the doctor could be made whole by uh, receiving money if he wins the case. And that's just simply not so. You cannot purchase your reputation back. And there are, phys there are physicians where we have won at trial. They've won their case. And a lot of physicians think, oh, well, I can get it out of the data bank now. No, they still have the data bank report. The mere fact that you win your case in, in at trial does not force the data bank to remove that report. The only thing that the, the data bank, yeah, there's reasons for removing it, uh, but one of them is if the action is overturned in the hospital, then it will be removed. But simply winning your case in litigation is not going to get that report out of the data bank. And these physicians who have won their case are still, uh, you know, severely uh, ruined by that data bank report. Yeah, no, that's, it's just, uh, it's, it's both frightening and saddening. And what I was asking was, you know, early on, how do you, I mean, how do physicians find, and maybe, you know, this is for Dr. Kaki and or Deb or Dr. Huntoon, uh, you know, either of you to answer is how, how to find, is there um, a repository of, you know, experts and attorneys who are adept at handling these cases? Because, you know, I mean, not all attorneys are adept at handling sham peer reviews and, you know, you know, and then they would say, you know, oh, sham, I mean, it's, it's a peer review. It's going to be a very tough case. You know, it's patient safety. We can't prove innocence and they go that, that path. So what is your recommendation? Let me give you the first answer. And then I'd, I'd want to hear from um, Dr. Huntoon and Deb. So in my particular case, you know, there was, there was three key people in my case that helped me win actually four key people. We had, I had an attorney who did a really good job, who we had a general counsel for our practice name is Zom Elder. He guided me. But beyond that, my, the call that I made to Dr. Huntoon probably saved my career. There's another person who was dedicated to the uh, peer review process. That was his specialty. He was excellent. So I had an attorney for, for the peer review process for my fair hearing who specialized in that. I had Deb who uh, specialized in employment law. And then Dr. Huntoon was educating me about this whole process about peer review. And so as I look back at my particular case, those are the individuals who I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude because they saved my career. They saved my livelihood. They allow me to, to continue to practice. I've regained my reputation. I've been vindicated and fully exonerated. And the vindication and the exoneration has allowed me not only to continue to practice uh, a craft which I've dedicated my life to and what I love and I'm passionate about, but I've also been able to influence other physicians and try to mitigate how many physicians are impacted by this very, very unfair process. So you have to call Huntoon, Dr. Huntoon. You have to understand the attorneys in your geography who are specialized in this. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of them. And the, the last thing I will say is I, I was very blessed that I had the fortitude. I was blessed that I was financially able uh, to pay for these expert, uh, experts. But there are some doctors who don't have either the mental fortitude or financially uh, are unable uh, to take this on. And unfortunately, hospitals know that and will take advantage of that. So that's my take. I will, I will add to that with regard to uh, finding a lawyer. 
you know, it's never too early, even if you're in good shape at, at your hospital, to start just checking uh, around to see who does do this area of practice. You know, as you can imagine, most of the, the attorneys that specialize in these processes work for the hospitals. Uh, there's many, many attorneys out there that do specialize in healthcare, and, and they work for the hospitals. So trying to find what uh, I would call a plaintiff's attorney, a plaintiff being the uh, physician who's in trouble and is going to uh, potentially bring litigation, is not an easy thing to do. There are people out there. Um, you can check with employment specialists, and Dr. Huntoon, I'm sure, is a good source. Um, but that was the key for Dr. Kaki that um, he did get representation at the fair hearing level from a, a law firm that oftentimes does represent hospitals. And so uh, the record was made at the fair hearing. We had the great record uh, from that. And we were able, when we got into litigation, to really, you know, hammer the fact that his peers, his neutral peers had found in his favor uh, right across the board. It's difficult. It's, as he says, it's extremely difficult. Well, it's an important it's an important issue identifying a knowledgeable attorney, and it can be difficult. As Deb points out, uh, if you look under health law, the attorneys who are under health law look them up on the internet. A lot of those do work for hospitals. Some also work for physicians. Uh, but it's very important to identify a an attorney who is knowledgeable in the peer review process as well as knowledgeable in sham peer review tactics. And uh, if you don't do that, what can happen is you may end up spending tens of thousands of dollars educating your own attorney about the peer review process and sham peer review and all the peculiarities of a law called the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act, a federal law where the doctor is considered guilty unless proven innocent by a preponderance of the evidence. And that totally, you know, puts uh, the American justice system kind of on its head. We're not used to that, guilty until proven innocent. But that's the federal law, HICWA, passed in 1986, which basically governs peer review in hospitals. So it's, uh, I have worked with many attorneys throughout the nation. Our AAPS general counsel has, uh, who's, really a top attorney in sham peer review manners has, has uh, worked with various attorneys throughout the nation. So uh, if you contact one or both of us, sometimes we can provide a referral to someone who's knowledgeable in your area. Yeah, no, I mean, um, this has been uh, an eye-opening and an excellent discussion. Uh, you know, we're 50 minutes into it. So uh, I'm going to I'm, I'm certain we've only scratched the surface and there's so much more to learn. And, you know, maybe I'll have to get Dr. Huntoon and and Deb and, you know, Dr. Kaki back for, you know, a, a second episode, you know, to, to sort of understand more about the process. But, you know, thank you for, for your time uh, on a Friday evening. Is there any closing remarks from any of you that you'd like to share before we end the show? Well, I would I would like to say, since your audience is primarily cardiologists, that uh, one of the things I've identified over the years is not all specialties are attacked with the same frequency. Those toward the top of the list that are attacked most often tend to be interventional cardiologists, neurosurgeons, spine surgeons, and anesthesiologists. So the specialty of interventional cardiology is one uh, where physicians seem to be attacked more frequently than other specialties. 
Yeah, that, that we've, we've got a lot of soul searching to do as a specialty, I'm sure, and Dr. Kaki would agree. Um, Dr. Kaki, you have any any other closing remarks? I mean, you know, we're, we're colleagues and, you know, we, we behave as colleagues and that's the least we can do, at least. No, I, I just I just really want to extend my gratitude to uh, my attorney, Deb Gordon. I want to extend my gratitude to uh, Dr. Huntoon. I want to extend my gratitude to my family who had faith in me uh, throughout the entire process. And I also would like to extend my gratitude to uh, the field of intermetric cardiology, my colleagues who reached out to me when this happened, um, my colleagues who, st- who stayed loyal, my colleagues who supported me through the process, either but you know emotionally or you know uh, testifying for me. And I have been accepted back into our community. I was actually never relegated out of it. So uh, that means a lot to me. It saved my career. And I've been able to uh, impact our field and our patients. And I hope to continue to do that for a long time. We as physicians, particularly in our space, have a very t- a tough challenge taking care of our patients. We need to support each other. We need to take care of each other. And uh, that's that's the future. We have to stick together. We're one big family. And I'm hoping that people listen to this and, uh, you know, think kindly of your colleagues and uh, and don't don't facilitate bringing down good physicians uh, because the hospital is uh, is trying to coerce you or you get benefit. So that would be my closing remark to my colleagues. Let's stick together and do the right thing for our patients. My, my final comment is that uh, Dr. Amir Khaki is a very unusual uh, person in the regard, in addition to being an unbelievable doctor, he has so much courage and he's so intelligent. And also he had the relationships and by that, I mean, he, he really did have the respect of his peers in the hospital. And there were many a day uh, during our trial where something would come up in testimony and he reached out to a colleague who was willing to set the record straight uh, to offer testimony on the record. Um, and so with, without somebody of the courage and tenacity, and as you can hear, he reached out, he got to Dr. Huntoon, he made this happen. Um, it's a very difficult thing. And, and Dr. Khaki really has done so much uh, for the community to let people know that you can prevail. Not everybody is a Dr. Khaki, but Dr. Huntoon is an amazing resource for everybody out there. So do not be deterred. Um, and uh, think of Dr. Khaki and Dr. Huntoon and, you know, do what you can to uh, get your team together and to weller up uh, the courage and the guts, honestly, to try to see this through. Yeah, no, excellent remarks. And, um, you know, again, um, you know, I'd like to thank all of you, um, you know, Dr. Kaki, Dr. Huntoon, Deb, for taking the time and for just what I, what I believe is we've just scratched the surface and there's so much more to learn. I mean, there's, um, you know, so much to to dabble and dig into this. I'm sure listeners would probably go back and rewind and listen to this again. And maybe we could do this at at some point in time to sort of build up on what we've already discussed. But thanks again so much for for being on Parallax. And and until we see you next time, you know, have a good weekend. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.